So, three, two, one. So this is never going to work. Welcome to another episode of Bibliophile Labyrinth Adventures. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't bring myself to shorten the name, even though you're totally right, Michael from Texas, this is a way better name. Uh, Bibliophile Lab is just burned into my brain. So welcome to the lab. Um, Tonight I'm going to attempt the impossible. But don't worry, because um, my alarm is as, as uh, strong as... Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. I'm going to attempt The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, yes, Ramston Steele. So either you've read this book or you haven't, and either you love this book or you hate it. And I'm going to attempt to go into the reasons why I freaking love this book. And uh, maybe it's best to start off at the start. The dedication of this book... Um, this thing, by the way, I'm thinking it's like almost a thousand pages, and I'm going to try and get through this in less than an hour. So I hope you guys are ready. Buckle up. To my mother, who taught me to love books, who opened the door to Narnia, Pern, and Middle-earth. So right there, you've got his dedication. Um, he's name-checking three of the just greatest rock-solid uh, fantasy series ever, maybe. At least the best the most kind of fundamental stuff in the English language. Okay, and to my father who taught me that if I was going to do something, I should take my time and do it right. Dear listener, I have got The Doors of Stone, which is book three in this series. I have got it on pre-order and at a certain online bookstore. And that thing is due to come out. Uh, depending which edition you get, uh, I guess I have the, paper, uh, the hardback on order. For August 20th, 2020. Whether there's any significance to that date, I'm not sure. It's all the 20s, and yeah, great, I have less than a year to wait, and I, to be honest, I'm happy to wait another couple years if that's what it takes. Mr. Rothfuss, if you're listening to this, take your time, do it right. Um, the two books so far in this series, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, they both start off just the same, well, slightly differently. It's like a kind of a musical... Or like a poetic coda to the story that's going to follow. The Waystone Inn lay in silence, and it was a silence of three parts. So here's the three sections of the book being set up. Part one is the name of the wind. Part two is the wise man's fear. Part three is going to be the doors of stone. And it goes on to describe this silence, which is actually the background to the scene. All three books are set in the same gosh darn scene it never leaves this one room um it's an inn at the side of a road the waystone inn inside the waystone inn a pair of men huddled at one corner of the bar they drank with quiet determination avoiding serious discussions of troubling news in doing this they added a small sullen silence to the larger hollow one made an alloy of sort of sorts a counterpoint so you'll notice every single Every single word, every description is chosen and weighed like a like a fine alloy, like a blade of ramston steel. And um, every single word, every single image is kind of set up as almost a joke or almost like um, like a 
bardic jest, like a song that's going to come slowly through winding ways to its conclusion. The third silence was not an easy thing to notice. If you listened for an hour, you might feel it in the wooden floor underneath and in the rough splintering barrels behind the bar. It was in the weight of the black stone hearth that held the heat of a long dead fire. It was in the slow back and forth of a white linen cloth rubbing against the grain of the bar, and it was in the hands of the man who stood there, polishing a stretch of mahogany that already gleamed in the lamplight. The man had true red hair, red as flame. His eyes were dark and distant, and he moved with the subtle certainty that comes from knowing many things. The waystone was his just as the third silence was his. This was appropriate as it was the greatest silence of the three, wrapping the others inside itself. It was deep and wide as autumn's ending. It was heavy as a great river smooth stone. So there's this theme of the stones coming out again and again. That's one of the themes in itself is, is called the waystone. And you're going to find out that these waystones have a special significance throughout the whole story. It's almost like there's some kind of uh, gateway or there's some kind of sanctuary from this evil world that you're slowly going to hear about. Because in the first chapter, you hear some gossip from the road. It's like setting up a Dungeons & Dragons adventure, actually. It's exactly like that. Typically, you're going to meet at an inn. Seems like a safe place. Um, in Tolkien, there's a bunch of inns which are safe Ur than the surroundings. There's the Prancing Pony at Bree that marks the end of the, the Hobbit's country of the Shire and the world of the men is outside. Um, then there's the last homely house which marks the end of the world of men even and that's where the elves, the half-elf, um, there's the half-elf who runs the place. Uh, you guys know his name, right? And, um, and that's the last inn that marks uh, the uncivilized country that's coming. And from then on, you've got to fend for yourself. So in the same way, this inn is uh, full of rumors. You hear about these tinkers who are out there. A tinker's debt is always paid once for any simple trade, twice for three freely given aid, thrice for any insult made. So already there's this, there's like a rich mythology that's going on in the background. Um, and mythology is the other uh, theme of the book that's set up in these first couple of pages. There's the myth of Taborlin, who's this mythological ancient uh, wizard who you're going to hear about a lot. There's the Chandrian uh, right there on the first page of chapter one. These seven kind of almost demonic figures that haunt this whole world. And there's also this strange character called Quoth, and it always reminds me of Edgar Allan Poe, Quoth the Raven, this type of stuff, and I'm sure that's going to be I'm sure he's going to bring that in at some point. Uh, but that, that, that is an English word that just means said. In this book, he claims uh, that it means to know. And um, again, all the way through, there's a theme of knowing things, seeking out these secret, um, secret knowledge, uh, arcane secrets that could be out there. Page 8 we get, finally, we hear about river stones again. So it's like these waystones are important. Um, spider demons, brilliant, straight into the action, well done. A good dungeon master is always going to bring out some kind of um, conflict, combat or something. First couple of minutes of the game, you've got a big demon. The innkeeper frowned, they can't have made it this far west yet. So obviously he knows what's going on, he knows more than you, it seems. And the innkeeper goes out and fights these demons. The first one is a dead one. Um, the innkeeper goes out at night, he calls himself Coat with a K, but actually we pretty soon guess that it's, it's him, it's Quoth. 
Um, he goes out. He has a friend, by the way. He has a friend called Bast, who, again, it, there's something more than meets the eye to this guy. Um, Quoth goes out and kills this Skrael, this demon, um, and meets a third character who is the, um, the chronicler, who we hear is actually writing this book that we're reading now. And this is another theme from Tolkien. Um, Bilbo Baggins, the Hobbit, from the book of the same name, he's actually the author of The Lord of the Rings. That whole story is written in Bilbo's hand. And in, um, I think in the second book, or even in the first book, at Elrond's house, the last homely house, you see Bilbo writing The Lord of the Rings, actually. And in the same way, you see the Chronicle of writing the book that you are, you are now reading. Over the bar hangs a sword whose name is Folly. Um, so as we as we get through the meeting with the chronicler, who's actually some kind of um, he's kind of an anti-hero because he wants to write down this true story of Quoth. And all through the book, we're going to see this tension between what's really true and what people would like to be true, including Quoth himself. By the way, Quoth is this guy who would like to know everything, and he's too easily taken in by stories. Uh, Quoth agrees to tell Chronicler the story because he's basically being blackmailed. Um, Chronicler is going to tell the wrong story about Quoth if he doesn't get the truth and nothing but the truth. Um, but that blackmail is going to backfire on Chronicler quite badly as the story goes on because there's another character who's interested in the truth or what should be the truth about Quoth and that's Bast. Uh, Bast is not human as it turns out. Um, but he's someone that Quoth is going to meet quite late on in the story, I guess, in book three, um, unless we've already met him. Maybe we've met him in some kind of disguise in books one and two. How odd to watch a mortal kindle, then to dwindle day by day, knowing their bright souls are tinder and the wind would have will have its way. Would I could my own fire lend? What does your flickering portend? That's what Bast says about Quoth, and um, he's worried about Quoth. He wants his friend back. He wants this cool ass-kicking hero back, whatever the cost. Um, and he's going to write, he's going to rewrite the story in his own way, um, whether that's literally, whether we're reading the redacted version here, or whether we're reading um, what Chronicler wrote, but with some subtle changes from somehow within the story. Uh, Rothfuss is one for changing stories. If you have the chance to get hold of it, you should try and track down a little kid's book called... Uh, the Princess and Mr. Whiffle. It's about a little princess and her toy, her uh, bedtime bear, and it is basically a picture book. There's very few words, and you've got to pay close attention to the pictures because as you read through the story, it gets a little bit stranger, a little bit stranger, until you get to the end and you think, wait a minute, what? And then you have this bad feeling in your stomach and you go back and read the whole thing again from the beginning, and you see that it's actually a totally different story. I don't think you can get this book anymore. I think it's out of print, which is a very sad loss for humanity because you, sh you should read it. He does in about 10, 20 pages more than some authors do in a thousand. The whole thing is like this fantastic and terrifying joke. This would be like an ideal um, Halloween book to read if you can get a hold of it. The Princess and uh, Mr. Whiffle. Mr. Whiffle is the teddy bear. So, um, Chronicler is listening to this story, and he wants the true story. Turns out that Chronicler is a relation of Quoth, or um, someone he knows, because uh, Chronicler's name is Devan Lokiz, and every flippin' word in this book is chosen like this, so that it rhymes with something, or it reminds you of something. 
Lockheed sounds a lot like um, Lockless or Lackless, which is a name that comes up again and again. Quoth uh, has a box that is lockless under his bed. Um, it's almost like a door with no lock, right? And Lackless, uh, which means um, lacking nothing, no, there's nothing missing, sounds a lot like Lockless, could be a different accent, right? Um, and that's one theme that's going to come up again and again, and I think it's going to be revealed in book three. Um, now for the story itself. Well, the whole plot of the story is actually um, revealed on the back of the book. So here it is. My name is Quoth. I have stolen princesses back from sleeping barrow kings. I burned down the town of Trebon. I've spent the night with Valorian and left with both my sanity and my life. I was expelled from the university at a younger age than most people are allowed in. I tread paths by moonlight that others fear to speak of during day. I've talked to gods, loved women, and written songs that make the minstrels weep. You may have heard of me. So much for the legend. And then the rest of the book is taken up for explaining the rather banal, or rather kind of um, ironic, um, disappointing truth behind those adventures. So, um, Chronicler, which, which is the author, don't forget, of the book, has written a book called The Mating Habits of the Common Dracus. And the Dracus is a dragon. Um, but there's this giant lizard that's the origin of the myth of the dragon. And Quoth does actually kill it um, in a rather surprising way. And when he kills it, he also burns down the, the town of Trebon by mistake. Um, I think he uses some drugs to get the dragon uh, totally high, stoned off its head. And um, perhaps it also breathes fire, and that's how it burns down the town. We're going to see that in a minute. I swear, I tell you. Um, still have a half an hour. So they have a philosophical discussion about stories and legends, and Quoth agrees to um, the blackmail. So Quoth starts off his story with his childhood. It is a classic hero uh, backstory. He's, um, he's a gypsy child. They're not called gypsies, but that's what they are. They're kind of uh, traveling people. The Edomaru, they live to perform and sing songs and tell stories. But there's something a little bit... Uh, there's a bit more to them. Uh, and they are seen in a wholly positive light in the book. They're kind of... Um, they're not romanticized. They're, they're people who travel and they get a lot of bad treatment and bad press. But they have patrons. Uh, patrons are going to come up again, by the way. Um, so they become the the um, the troop, the paid um, entertainers, uh, almost like the servants of this baron. Servants of this baron, which is totally true to history, actually, uh, Renaissance history. You know, um, like Shakespeare would have had his contracts to get some uh, advance for his plays and so on. So they have enough money to live on, and they're doing well, and they're actually pretty educated people. They're cultured people. Um, and they learn uh, civilization, actually. Quoth uh, learns um, a lot of things about civilization, but from a child's perspective. And he learns a ton of um, stories and songs, of course. He learns a lot of plays off by heart. He learns to act. Um, so he's this precocious child. He, he thinks he knows everything, and he probably does know most things. But he doesn't have perspective. Meets an old guy who's... Uh, I think modeled after um, Obi-Wan from Star Wars, see what you think. On the old man's wagon, there's a sign that reads, Abanthi, Arcanist Extraordinary, Scribe, Dowser, Chemist, Dentist, Rare Goods, All Ailments Tended, Lost Items Found, Anything Mended. See, it rhymes even in the, even in the sign, yeah? I think he really wants to be a rapper. 
no horoscopes, no love potions, no malefaction. So Abanthi is a good guy, or Ben, short for Abanthi, and he's going to be called Ben. He's like a Jedi master, basically. So he teaches, um, he teaches Quoth um, sympathy, which is this scientific magic that uh, Patrick Rothfuss has got um, worked out. So basically, you've got to convince yourself that something is true and it will be true. And in order to do this, you've got to split your mind into different parts for the various versions of reality. Um, and you've got to have something that's similar to the other thing that you want to affect. So that's like real, uh, not real maybe, but um, real as in folklore, that people really have done this magic throughout history, I think, or try to, you know, making a voodoo doll would be the obvious example. But it could be anything, actually, like making a little um, planet or something to represent the planets up in the sky and trying to influence them that way. So in Rothfuss's world, it really works. And um, it actually is based on physics. It's based on real science. That this, He had the time to do this. I think Patrick Rothfuss took so many different classes uh, during his many years at university. I would totally believe that he, he sat down and figured out the numbers. I think he's actually gone on record as saying that. Anyway, it sounds convincing. And um, so if you want to heat something up, you need to get that heat from somewhere. You could do it with your body heat. But as some people might know from experience or from like sports that you do, like diving or something, if you lower your body temperature by even a degree Celsius or Fahrenheit even, um, you are in trouble. You're going to get sick really quickly because your body can't take that. Um, and so in this book, that also happens all the time as a kind of price of doing magic. Uh, so he learns the magic. He learns a rhyme which proves to be dangerous. Seven things, remember that number seven? Seven things has Lady Lackless, keeps them underneath her black dress. One a ring that's not for wearing. It's pretty raunchy stuff, actually. One a sharp word, not for swearing. Right beside her husband's candle, there's a box. There's a door without a handle. In a box, no lid or locks. Lackless keeps her husband's rocks. There's a secret she's been keeping. She's been dreaming and not sleeping. On a road that's not for traveling. Lackless likes her riddle raveling. And this riddle, uh, it's got a pretty obvious answer I'm not going to mention here. But also, it's got a lot of um, references, allusions to um, words which have power. Don't forget, in magic. Um, there's a candle, maybe that comes up later. There's rocks, so remember those stones. There's a door with no handle and a box with no lid or locks. And that's exactly what uh, Quoth has got literally under his bed. It's a box, um, the lockless box. There's a road for not traveling. Um, so there's a lot of like mystical, magical themes in there, as well as the obvious kind of raunchy stuff. Um, and that's another theme that's going to come up later when he meets Florian, spends the night with her, and leaves with his sanity and his life, unlike most. So... Um, there's a lot of foreshadowing like that. He falls in love with this girl who's singing the song, um, but then um, she leaves. And after a couple more kind of strange uh, meetings, he meets this girl. Um, suddenly, they're all dead. Uh, everyone's dead. The place is burned down uh, to ashes, and his parents are gone. We assume they're dead. Everybody's dead. Um, they're dead, Dave. Everybody's dead. Um, his father has been singing entirely the wrong kind of songs. He's been trying to write a song about the Chandrian, these seven demonic figures, and it basically comes out and says that these are the ones who turn up and kill everybody. Um, and Quoth overhears what they're saying, 
he hears he hears them having an ang- an angry conversation. Um, one of them is called Haliax. They all have different names. You don't hear them all. Uh, so basically, then Quoth goes off on this quest to survive. He is scarred for life, obviously, as he would be by seeing everybody die. Um, he's penniless. He has nothing. He has his father's loot, which is his only means of making a living, right? Because uh, he can play it and he can sing like a maestro already. Um, and that's what he does. He goes off in the wilderness and he learns to play um, by listening to nature and listening to the wind and listening to his feelings of just anger and pain and suffering. It all goes into the music that he plays. And he takes it down to this big town called Tarbin. Tarbian. Sounds a bit like Trebon, doesn't it, actually? And I get, I get the feeling there's going to be a connection there, too. Probably it's two different languages... Um, in his world that have similar meanings, like a big town or something. So Tarbian is this huge town. Um, he's a kid, so I guess it seems huge, right? Uh, even huger. And he meets um, a religious man. Uh, turns out that there's a whole religion in this world, which sounds a little bit like kind of a Christian thing, uh, but kind of not. It's kind of more bloody and brutal right there in the foundational myth. Uh, actually, no, it's pretty much like Christianity, right? I mean, there's terrible, brutal things happening. Um, and it's somehow kind of redemptive, but in this in this version, kind of not. Um, <laughs> so um, you get the feeling that this god of this world, who's also, by the way, it's like completely a human uh, figure in the in the myth of this religion, turns out that he is kind of this vengeful figure, and he's hunting down these evildoers. Um, and you, I guess, you get the feeling that that might be the Chandrian. Um, this part of the story is really heart-wrenching. Like, he's living in this terrible poverty with a bunch of other kind of uh, penniless people, um, disabled people, or just, you know, down and outs. And they're being cared for by this religious guy, this monk, basically, um, who's, like, totally selfless. Um, And he sings the kids to sleep and so on. And he goes out and and, um, brings back some money and food for the kids when he can. And then he has to leave them. Um, so basically, he the, the most unbelievable part, probably, of the story, um, Kvoth is working his way up from literally nothing. Uh, he steals some stuff, or he takes odd jobs and stuff and makes a little money. Um, and he slowly manages to, like, work his way up and trick his way. He actually pretends to be a noble and uses that to, um, first to trick and kind of intimidate, and then to get pity from a tailor, so he gets his first set of clothes. And the clothes kind of make the man, and then he goes from there. Um, he builds his um, builds his uh, his hustle, and he gets some money, and he gets enough money to go into the university. And all the time, his goal is to know things. He wants to know who are the Chandrian, and obviously that's going to get him into trouble because that that is what got his dad killed as well. Singing that song about the Chandrian, he meets another um, meet, he meets another bard, another minstrel who also gets in big trouble for singing about um, another tragic figure called Lan Rey, who, it turns out, seemingly has a similar story to maybe these Chandrian guys or to the religious figure. So obviously there's like a hotbed of kind of religious controversy almost. That's actually realistic. That makes me think about um, the real history of the West and the East. Because originally, um, in Europe, we were split into East and West Rome. There was one big European... Uh, culture which was across Byzantium in the east and now you have Russia and Greece and those places and a lot of little places too and then you had Latin uh, Rome in the west and the Greeks and the Latins split after a while 
But especially in the East, there were these controversies. People would argue in the coffee shop or the tavern or whatever over like whether Jesus was an angel or whether Jesus uh, was created by the Father, uh, God the Father, or whether the, um, you know, this kind of stuff. They would have these arguments. Oh my goodness, the Trinity. Yeah, that was a hot topic. And um, it's like this in this book as well. Like if you tell the wrong version of the story, you get into real trouble. Like these kind of totalitarian um, um, heavies will come down and literally take you away, lock you up. Um, and Quoth escapes that happening to him. And around that time, he meets Denna. Denna is this uh, mysterious lady. She is a call girl, apparently. She's a lady of the night. It's imp heavily implied because she always has a different boyfriend from chapter to chapter. She also changes her name for every single one of them. So she never has the same name twice. And the other funny thing about Denna is she is a drug. Um, there is a substance in this world called Denner with an R, Denner Resin, which is also the drug that Quoth uses to kill the dragon. Okay, so he meets her, he's totally in love. They have this constant, like, witty banter going on, and frankly, um, that's the part that many people really hate, because Quoth is like, he's so lame, he won't even, like, you know, get her number or anything like this. He, he refuses to uh, step up and actually ask her on a date. But they keep on meeting each other, nevertheless. And um, he kind of just goes all doughy-eyed, and he comes up with some funny jokes and stuff. Um, and in the end, he also, like, saves her life from this dragon. Okay, in the end of book one. This is only book one. So, um, Quoth gets into the university um, barely. You have to pay a ton of money. It's like uh, in the States, I guess. I would say this novel is about um, surviving college <laughs> and paying for it. So I think it's very much an American novel. Um, it's like that in Britain as well, somewhat. Um, and on the continent, it's kind of different. It's almost free to go to university. And in any case, you can work your way through. You're encouraged to work and you have pretty much as much money as you need. You know, you're not rich, but you're comfortable. Quoth is deeply uncomfortable. Um, he actually has to sell his soul, basically, to a moneylender uh, who has part of his blood. So she can do sympathetic magic on him anytime she wants. Um, and so he has to constantly scrape and save. He's going to use his bardic um, inspiration. He has three buddies. Um, it doesn't really matter what their names are. Uh, Willem and Simon. I, I was a bit disappointed at their characterization because I thought that could have been really cool. You, you get the feeling that there's meant to be like a cool friendship happening here. Different characters, you know, one of them is a bit more worldly, one of them is a bit more kind of idealistic, and Quoth is kind of in the middle. Uh, but that never really exploded for me that much. It's funny, you know, it's a little bit funny, but that's about it. Um, and they're playing games. They're playing a game, a card game called Corners, a lot, which I would love to actually make. Um, Cheap-ass games made a couple of pairs decks um, I spoke about pairs in the last, or maybe in the next episode, depending when this comes out. So I'm going to speak about that game. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can play with the pairs pack. It's like a card deck with 10 suits, if you can imagine that. Not just clubs, um, spades, and hearts, and diamonds, but there's actually 10 suits. And every suit has a different number of cards. So you can kind of do a lot of things with that. And one thing I'd love to do is a game of corners. In the university, there is a courtyard where the wind blows... Uh, round in circles and you throw in your wish that you want to get or your question and you get back an answer from one of the five doors there's yes no maybe um sometime and never 
and um, that would lend itself to a cool uh, game, actually. So I imagine that's what they're playing. Um, Quoth has a lot of rivalries with uh, various uh, boyfriends of Denner's, and that takes up a lot of this next couple of chapters. We're on chapter 62, roundabout. <laughs> His main um, rivalry is with a guy called Jackus. Um, yes, he's going to make up a song about this guy that makes him out to be a jackass. Can you hear that in my accent, American guys? It's Jackus and Jackass. I'm guessing you can't. Um, maybe you can. So um, this is where Quoth comes into his own. He becomes a, sort of a kind of master artificer. So he's making all these tool, cool like weapons, basically tools and weapons. Um, and this is where he's like a D&D character. Okay, in the <laughs> so this is crazy. In the D&D Player's Handbook, again, I got fifth edition here. You have downtime which is what you do between adventures, okay? You can um, obviously pay for your lifestyle, okay? So that's, you're a university student um, with no uh, rich family. So that's taken care of. You've got to get some money. You've got uh, crafting. You can make non-magical items. Well, Roth first decided, hey, look, magic is just science. So um, you can totally do magical items. Uh, so he makes like a kind of trap. It's so that if anyone casts a spell on him, that spell kind of rebounds on them, this kind of stuff. Um, you can do a profession, okay, so he has his music. Um, he actually, Quoth enters a competition that normally is really hard to win. And of course, being this kind of born performer and having all that pain and all that hurt inside him, his, his bleeding heart just like comes out into the strings. He breaks a string and he still finishes the song. And of course, then he hears this voice coming in to sing the, the lady's part, the woman's part of this love song that he's doing. And of course, yes, it's Denna. Um, and so they sing together and they're reunited. It's so romantic. La la. And then, oh, she has a boyfriend, so maybe not. Uh, recuperating, he spends a lot of time doing that because um, when he's uh, doing his... Um, he's just getting money, he... Um, he gets cold and tired and hurt quite a lot. And um, obviously he's going to do this sympathy magic on people and get the chills uh, quite often. So that takes like a day or two to get over. Researching is what he mainly does. Um, he actually, Quoth isn't allowed in the library because he got into trouble over bringing some candles in there. Oh look, candles. Um, which obviously could burn the books down. Um, Ambrose Jackus, of course, the rival, is the guy who slips those candles into his pocket or whatever it was, a sympathy lamp. Yeah, I think it's candles, because um, sympathy lamps won't start a fire. Um, so he's actually banned from most of the library, but he finds a way in. He has a friend who's a, another outsider called Auri, Ori. Um, that's the name that he gives her, and she loves to hear his music. She is a weird creature, almost, who lives up on the roof and only comes out at night. So is she real? Is she a figment of his imagination? Is any of this stuff real? Because he's, he's in love with a girl called Denner, don't forget. And Denner is the number one drug in this world. So maybe the whole thing is just him and his drugs, actually. Anyway, so she shows him a way down into the basement of the university. Turns out this university is actually the last um, remnant of this ancient civilization. That's what it seems like anyway. I mean, all of this could be, could be changed by the third book. Under there, there's a huge, like, labyrinth of tunnels. It's... It's totally D&D. This is a huge D&D book. Um, researching, you also have to dig under this, under these caverns. He crawls through a tunnel which is barely big enough for his body. And he comes out and he sees a door. 
Uh, I think it's made of stone. So there you go. There's that theme again. Um, he's making a living by this time off of um, his work at the university, making stuff, uh, which is super dangerous, by the way. Again, more recovery, more training. Training is another downtime um, for adventurers. There you go. And that's that's all the downtime activities in the player's handbook. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Did Pat Rothfuss write D&D, maybe? The new edition? I'm not sure. Um, this book does seem to suggest that he might have done. Um, so this girl, Auri, leads him into the university um, in return for kindness. Basically, Quoth is the only one who shows some kindness to her. So they're kind of like kindred spirits. And underneath there, he finds this mystical door in the archives. It's a door without a lock. It's a door without a handle. There you go. Um, so it's all leading up to this big reveal of what's, what's behind the door. Um, what's in the box? Is it a door to a mystical world or something? Um, like where maybe where these demons have come from because um, at the end of the book uh, they come back and um, Kvothe's researchers lead him to go off on a journey with Denna I forget how they get together again like really weird coincidence okay why why does she keep showing up and letting him rescue her basically this seems like totally suspicious so they kill this dragon um, even though I've kind of spoiled what happens, you should still read it because it is hilarious. Pretty, pretty crazy. Um, every seven years, you should expect disaster. And there's seven words that you can tell a woman to make her fall in love with you. I was just wondering why you're here. My seven words. I've been wondering the same thing for so long, she says to him. So they escape this Dracus. Um, a huge iron wheel falls off of the church. And this iron wheel is also the symbol of the god in this world okay so it's made of iron which is a thing that harms fairies that's another real world uh, reference um to real world mythology of course um but that's the iron wheel that this guy gets like tortured on in the, in the religion in this world it's pretty it's pretty terrifying i mean seriously and it's the only way to kill these demons okay iron and burning certain trees and things it's very much out of the real uh, world's mythology but it's um it's like it's almost like reconstructed in this world of Rothfusses and it's it's very much what Tolkien was doing as well um kind of reconstructing a whole mythology and a whole history out of these little fragments that remain um of English mythology English um is a language which is almost it's almost gone I mean everything that was written down it's really sad you can read um, in the English Reformation, basically all the books were burned. Almost everything has gone. Um, there used to be these ancient things written in English, and they, they were all just burned. They were all just thrown away. Basically, like, only two or three books really survived. <laughs> I mean, a bunch of stuff survived, but hardly anything interesting. There was a bunch more stuff. Um, there's the Exeter book, which is in a place, obviously, called Exeter. It's in the university library. Um, I will go on record, I'll confess, I've actually touched it, even though you're not allowed to. So my fingerprints are in that thing forever now. Um, okay, I didn't, like, touch any of the letters, come on, I'm not a monster. <laughs> um, but that, that book contains some of the earliest English poems, some of the only surviving English writings from, like, when English was first a language. I mean, get your head around that. So talking, like, words, like, hundreds of words tops... Um, and Tolkien recreated this huge like world from that stuff and other things obviously because a lot of these myths are the same in, in all countries in Europe um, so Quoth at the end of this book we made it uh, 45 minutes 
um, he gets a whipping, and because his uh, rivalry with this Ambrose guy, I mean, I'm spoiling a lot of things, but come on, this book has been out for like years now, man, like decades, maybe. Um, he gets his whipping, um, and he manages to make it look like he was just fine. He didn't even bleed, okay? Like, I think he was using some drugs or something, or he was like using some sympathy magic as well. Anyway, he doesn't even bleed, and so he gets this mythological reputation as being like, oh my goodness, like you can whip this guy however many times, and he won't even he won't even lose any blood. You know, he'll be fine. So, um, and he works on this reputation himself for various reasons. You know, he wants to use everything he has because he has very little still. At that point, we skip back to the present time. We're back in the Waystone Inn. Chronicler is listening to the story. Um, there's another visitor at the door. It's a mercenary. You know, there's rumors of war and there's mercenaries and soldiers on the road. Turns out that this guy has been, like, possessed by some kind of horrible demon or something. Um, they cover it up, basically, and say that this guy was on, on drugs. Again, this Denner resin. Um, and they get rid of it pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Both has all these other female friends that also look after him, but none of them. There's no romantic thing there. You know, it's only Denner who's interesting to him. That's my crazy theory. I think that it's it's all drug addiction. I could be totally wrong, but it's like a sh cool Sherlock Holmes thing, right? Um, it could be both. And he's found his way, uh, by the end of the book, into uh, the library. He's been found out. Uh, yeah, and that's the end of the book. So we did it in 45 minutes. You should still read it because I missed out so much stuff. Um, for example... He's learned to. Um, he's learned that there's another type of magic, a deeper kind of magic, which is naming. So instead of this science stuff, it's just crazy, wild, um, bonkers magic. Like you know the true names of things, and you can kind of command them. So that's why the name of the wind is the uh, is a title. And this mysterious uh, Taborlin, who's the legendary wizard, maybe it's going to be Quoth in the end. Who knows? Time travel, whatever. Um, or maybe it's his teacher, that's Eladin, that's the naming master. Um, he allegedly has the power to command the wind. He just says the name, the true name of the wind, and the wind kind of carries him up even, you know, from a great height, stops him from dying when he falls. And Quoth tries this out, and spoiler alert, he uh, just crashes to the ground, like breaks both his legs or something stupid like this. Um, so again, a bit of recovery there. So, um, other uh, downtime activities in D&D, this time from the uh, Dungeon Master's Guide. So they went a bit more crazy. They allowed you to create magic items in the Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, I'm not sure why they split things up this way, okay? It seems like almost they just did the bare minimum in the Player's Handbook, because really you could just play with the Player's Handbook. Um, you don't need the Dungeon Master's Guide unless you really want to get deep into the stuff. But the... You could make magic items. Um, you could do some carousing. That, yeah, that that's that happens quite a bit in this book. Um, not as much as you might like, maybe, because uh, he can't afford the really good stuff yet. Uh, he caruses a bit more in book. Uh, building a stronghold. Well, he's kind of already built a stronghold in this book. It's uh, the Waystone Inn, where he's living. Um, it's not much of a stronghold, but it does seem to um, certainly seems to attract these demons, eh? You can run a business, definitely running a business. Um, selling magic items, well, he's got that sword, so let's see. And sowing rumors, yeah, that is definitely a downtime adventure that happens in the name of the wind. Uh, the whole thing is meant to be a corrective to this rumor that's going around about Quoth, and why rumors and histories and traditions are so dangerous if you get the wrong ones. 
So um, beware if you read this book, you may get into trouble. <laughs> I actually got my copy for free, not from the publisher, but I literally just like willed it into existence. Uh, <laughs> I really wanted to read it because I'd seen Patrick Rothfuss playing D&D uh, on YouTube. Um, he plays in the Acquisitions Incorporated campaign uh, with Christopher Perkins. Um, and now, um, and I wanted to read it. And then one day I just found a nice copy sitting there on the free bookshelf here in Germany. That's what we have around a lot of towns these days. You bring one, you take one. And of course I took this one. When the hearth fire turns to blue, what to do, what to do? Run outside, run and hide. When your bright sword turns to rust, who to trust, who to trust? Stand alone, standing stone. See a woman pale as snow, silent calm and silent go. What's their plan? What's their plan? Chandrian. Chandrian. The Chandrian were really here. So in book two, we're going to go and search out the Chandrian again. Um, we're going to go on an unexpected detour um, and probably hear some more strange, uh, mysterious poems. And it's also going to get really psychedelic and it's also going to get... It's going to go even more um, over-the-top adventure. Good. I'm looking forward to it. And um, hope that you'll join me next time for another uh, bibliomaniac adventure here in the labyrinth. Sayonara. Sayonara.